Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris. I'm one of the leadership team here. I'm also fighting a very, very serious bout of man flu this week. So I apologise. By the end of this, I might sound a bit like a Scouse Barry White. Um, but hopefully it won't detract too much from what we're talking about. Okay, so we're in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And I don't know if anyone's seen a TV programme which has rapidly become one of my kids' favourite on Netflix called Nailed It. Has anyone watched Nailed It? Oh, great, okay. Um, I'll try and explain it. It's basically it's a cookery programme, and they get amateur chefs who all seem to be hopeless, frankly, and they give them like a, a really difficult task, like a, a decorative cake or something, and they have to try and recreate the cake and sort of nail it, you know what I mean? Um, and frankly, they're not very good. Just to give you an idea, here's some pictures. So that's the... Uh, so there you go, there's one of them. That's someone's attempt. You can see the vague resemblance... Uh, of that one. That's, uh, that's meant to be a beaver. The one on the right, not really sure they've quite got it. There's a nice smiley face there. That might be my favourite one, the Cookie mon- Monster Cupcakes. Basically, the idea is you've got expectation not quite meeting reality. And actually, today we've got a, a Bible passage where Jesus actually experiences that frustration of expectation not meeting reality. And it's a slightly unusual story today. It's going to throw up quite a few questions for us, but stick with it. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get some stuff out of it. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, and we're in chapter 11, and we're in verses 12 to 26. It's going to be up on the screen. Both screens. I'll read it to you. On, on the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. That's Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let me just pray for us before we go any further. Lord God, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible, Lord. We thank you for the stories we have of Jesus, Lord, the most incredible man who ever lived. And Lord, we we just pray this morning that you'll, you'll, you'll speak through me, Lord. Lord, that you'll, you'll tell us what you want us to know, what you want us to hear, Lord. You'll challenge us where we need to be challenged. 
Will you bless us this morning as we, we study your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've got this story. And you might have noticed that those of you who were here last week when Rachel preached, didn't she do a great job, by the way? Frankly, frankly, a little bit annoying because you shouldn't be that good on your first time. And the same with Amanda. All these people keep starting to preach and they're just like smashing it straight out of the park. And I, like, I took like, I'm still no good. So it's great. Well done, Rachel. But be less good next time, please. Just, just for my pride. Um, Rachel covered some of what we covered today. So you might have recognized the story about the cleansing of the temple. That was part of Rachel's talk last week. But it, it, it actually fits in with what we're talking about today as well. I'm going to give you a little overview, just so you understand the chronology of what's happened there, the timeline. There we go. So the first thing that happens in this story is that, um, what we saw in Rachel's talk last week. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, doesn't he? He entered, what did he ride on? A donkey. Comes in on a donkey, and he's welcomed as this king. People are waving palm branches. They're putting coats down on the floor. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're, they're proclaiming him that he's the, the Messiah. So Rachel covered that last week. And then on the first evening, what happens is he goes to the temple and he just has a look around. Doesn't particularly do anything, just goes to the temple. That's the epicenter. That's the, the crux of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. That's, that's, that's where it's all happening in Jerusalem. So he goes, just mooches around, has a little look. And then what happens is he retires to Bethany. For the evening, he goes to Bethany. It's the equivalent of coming through into Liverpool, arriving as king, and then saying, I'm just going to nip over to the Wirral and sleep on the Wirral tonight. Just, just a bit of space away from the madding crowd, away from the city centre. Just going to nip over to the Wirral, a couple of miles away, a bit calmer over there. So he goes away to Bethany for the evening. And then the next morning, he journeys back into Jerusalem. And on the way, this is where we see the story we've got today. So as he's walking into Jerusalem, he's hungry, and he notices a fig tree. And the fig tree is full of leaves. And when he goes to it, though, there's no figs on the tree. And he curses the tree. He says, do you know what? May no one ever eat of you again. From there, he goes into Jerusalem and this is where we see what Rachel preached last week, that he cleanses the temple. He has this amazing sort of story of, he sees all the stuff that's going on, the, the, the money changing hands in the wrong, in the wrong way, the, the Gentiles who were supposed to welcome into the temple being blocked from the temple, the, the, the cheating and the lying that's going on there, the, the, the fact that it's basically become a place of trade uh, and a place of dishonest trade rather than a house of prayer. And he turns the tables over and he gets very angry and he tells people, oh, this, is, this is not what's supposed to happen in the temple. And then he goes back to the Wirral, or back to the Bethany again, in verse 19. And the next morning, he comes back to Jerusalem, and that's when the disciples see this tree again. And the tree is completely withered. It's gone. Like, it's, it's just dried up. Where, where there were leaves, it's just branches and twigs. And where Peter says, gosh, look, look at that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's withered. Like, it's amazing. You told it to, that no one's ever going to eat from it again, and it's withered again. And then Jesus has this conversation with the disciples about prayer, and then he has this conversation with the Pharisees about his authority, which is where Rachel landed last week, remember? When they, talked, they asked him that question, whose authority are you teaching on? And he gave him that kind of posing question about John the Baptist. That's where Rachel landed. So you can see we're kind of intertwined a little bit, interspliced between this story. I just wanted to give you that picture so you knew where we are. And you know, the Bible is often arranged in this kind of way. You've got little stories that, on the one hand, don't look like they, they fit together or they get in the way of each other a little bit. Actually, they're all very, very much linked together in a beautiful way. And we'll see that this morning, why, why it's arranged like this. The fig tree is not just a random story about Jesus being hangry. Okay? Do we know that phrase, hangry, hungry and angry? My wife knows it very well. 
I get very hungry and angry. She gets very hungry and angry. Often we'll be having an argument. It's like, oh, have you eaten recently? <laughs> Stuff a banana in. Everything's all good. <laughs> Happens more, more times than I care to admit in our house. From both of us. And the kids as well. Chloe is another one. Like, she just, she'll be screaming the head off and just, just throw a biscuit in and everything's golden. <laughs> Top parents and tips. But this is not a story about Jesus being hungry. It's not that he's like, oh, I really want some figs. And you think of me any figs? Actually, this story about the fig tree is very much connected to the story of the temple and the story of him arriving in Jerusalem being declared, uh, proclaimed as king. And we'll talk about Jesus' actions in a minute. But first, I just want you to notice one thing about what we see about Jesus in this passage. Remember, he's just been welcomed into the city as the Messiah. But we talked about, Rachel talked about last week, the kind of Messiah he was welcomed in as was not the kind of Messiah he was going to be. The Jews were waiting. What were they waiting for? They were waiting for a warrior. They wanted someone who was going to come in and batter the Romans. They want someone to come in and liberate them from this Roman oppression. He's going to ride in on a white horse with a big sword and just kill everyone and be their military leader. A bit like King David was. That's what they want. And yet actually, we soon realise in this story that Jesus is actually not this guy. He's actually something much more incredible. We find out actually he's both more normal and human than they would have hoped, but also more powerful and mighty than they could ever dare imagine. You see, we see his human side in this story. We see in verse 12, Jesus is hungry. Sounds an obvious thing, doesn't it? He was hungry. He was human. He had human needs, basic human needs. He, he was as human as we are. He got hungry. He got tired. He got hungry, maybe. Like, Jesus, Jesus got hungry. But he was meant to be this military messiah warrior, this strong guy who's going to come in and smash everyone. He's not supposed to get hungry. He's not supposed to show weakness. He's not supposed to show that he's just a normal bloke. But that's what we see. Jesus, you know what? I'm hungry, guys. I need some figs. Do you know, that's never something I say. <laughs> I'm hungry! Where are the figs? <laughs> not, not normally top of, my, top of my list, but Jesus was after a fig. Never mind. But then we also see, as well as the human side, we see the divine side of Jesus. This huge demonstration of godly power. There's no figs on the tree. And he curses the tree and we see the tree dies. In fact, in, in Matthew's account of this story, the tree dies instantly. And this, and this account is slightly different. Jesus has power over nature. He's able to speak a word and nature is reversed. That's not something that the Jews were expecting from this Messiah. They wanted, a, they wanted a soldier here. They've got someone who can speak and nature changes. Jesus is the Messiah that no one expected. He shows weakness and vulnerability in being hungry. And later, he'll show his weakness and his vulnerability in going to the cross. But also, he goes way beyond the expectation of a warrior king by having this incredible divine power and command over nature. And then we see in the story something even more distressing to the Israelites. Not only is Jesus not going to come and beat the Romans up, actually he's going to come and criticize the Jews. He's going to come and show them where they're going wrong. He's going to come and say, guys, this is not, you're not living right. You're not doing this right. You're making a mess of things and God's not happy. He doesn't come to smash the Romans. He comes to, to, to break down everything that's going wrong with the Jewish faith and to show them something much, much better. I just want you to have that in your mind as we, as we go through this. So, two things I want to I kind of explain to you this morning, hopefully help you to understand this one about this fig tree story. God wants, number one, God wants a sincere heart and not a showy exterior. 
So Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, into this huge fanfare of worship and acclaim and praise. He's got to be feeling pretty good about himself. There's people lying in the streets. They're welcoming him. And there's this outward display of worship. And it's all good. And then he visits the temple and he looks around. And he goes off to Bethany and he has a, you know, chills out. And, you know, it's a pretty good day all round. He would have seen in the temple the, the hustle and bustle. Life happening in the temple. He would have seen a commotion. He would have seen a packed house. He would have seen all sorts going on. And on the surface, it would have looked great. This busy place, this epicenter of faith. This place where it's all happening. This temple, the, the center, the centerpiece of Jerusalem. And to, to the untrained eye, it wouldn't look cool. But we see that appearances are deceptive. And actually, when he went to Bethany that night, he would have been balancing all those things that he'd seen with the knowledge, the foreknowledge that six days later, this crowd that had welcomed him, welcomed him in, this crowd that had just called him king, this crowd that had said, Hosanna in the highest, they were going to be screaming for him to be crucified just six days later. He knew that. He just knew that. He's just been welcomed as a king, and he knew that six days later, six days later these same people would be screaming for his death. And in the fig tree, and in the cleansing of the temple, we see Jesus exposing the deceptive appearances of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Now, why on earth have I put a turkey on the screen? I'll tell you. When I was a kid, we had one Christmas when we had a huge family gathering. My mum bought just the biggest turkey we could afford. She bought it from Iceland. Should have been all right. Reputable shop. Just this massive, massive turkey. And she thawed it. She put it in the oven. And as she cooked it, she started to notice there was maybe a little bit more juice coming off it than normal. In fact, seven pints of juice came out of this turkey. And by the end of it, it was no bigger than a normal small chicken. It had been pumped with water to make it seem massive. This, this thing that I promised so much, it was going to feed a whole family, barely fed a couple of us. You see the deceptive appearance. Something can look absolutely great. Something can look so tasty and fruitful and brilliant. And then when you get up close and you really examine it, it turns out to be nothing of the sort. And that's what happens with this fig tree. Jesus is hungry, he spots the tree, and it's covered in leaves. And as you know, I'm something of an expert on Middle Eastern horticulture. And I know that in fig trees, when there's leaves, there should be figs. There should be figs. You don't get fig tree, uh, leaves without figs normally on a fig tree, especially in, in that society. And it does say it wasn't the season of figs, but actually, uh, in that culture, you would get figs on a fig tree probably 10 months out of 12 in a year, and especially if there were leaves. If there were leaves, you're going to get figs. That's just the way it was. So when Jesus sees from the distance this tree, it doesn't matter what season it is, he should find fruit because there's leaves there. But he gets there and he doesn't find fruit. And this appearance that offers something so much reveals a reality that's barren. And his response is stark, isn't it? Using his divine power, his command over nature, he curses and ultimately withers and kills this tree. And you might ask, why didn't he just say, grow some fruit? Might have been easier, mightn't it? But he doesn't. He wants to demonstrate something. Look, this, this is not right. It's not going to stand. Because this story is not about Jesus not getting some breakfast. It's about exposing a spiritual sickness in the heart of Israel. And we see that by what he does next when he goes to the temple. And again, from a distance, it looks healthy. It's bustling. It's busy. It's, it's crowded. There's loads of people there. There's bustling trade. There's high attendance. But underneath the veneer, 
underneath the surface, Jesus sees what's really going on. It's not a fruitful place. He sees a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. Rachel covered that brilliant last week for a full explanation of that. Please go back and listen to her talk from last week. Annoyingly good. His reaction in the temple is not to kindly explain to people, guys, you're not quite getting this right. We need to, we need to just change a few things here. No. He wants to show them just how serious this is. And it goes a bit crazy. He flips the tables over and he tells the guys, what are you doing? You're a den of robbers. And he, he has to show them just how much this matters. And in fact, this, seems like a, this fig tree story seems like a strange little story to us, but actually it would have had a huge meaning and significance for this first century Jewish audience. It wasn't just a figment of their imagination. Underappreciated genius. That'll be on my gravestone. Underappreciated genius. Right, so fig trees were throughout scripture, actually. And actually, fig trees were used often as a picture of prosperity and even as a picture of Israel itself. So I've got just a few examples here on the screen. In Deuteronomy, it says this, a land... This is talking about the promised land. This is what the Israelites are going to find in the promised land. He says, you're going to find a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you'll eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything. Fig trees were a symbol of goodness and prosperity. If you find fig trees, it's a good sign. You know, it's it's fruitful, it's good. It's something that promises a lot. In Micah 4, Again, it's talking about a good time under God where, where Israel is united to, its, to their father. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. When things are going well for Israel, there's fig trees in abundance and there's fruit. It's, it's a good sign. In Hosea, verse 9 and 10, it actually, he actually likens Israel itself, the whole country, to a fig tree. It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. And they came to Baal, Peor, and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame, and it came detestable like the thing they loved. He's saying, when I found you, things were great, and you were like fig trees. You were doing great, and then things went, went badly. But again, this, this picture of a fig tree is a, is a picture of something good in Israel. And then we see the other side of it in Joel 1, 11 to 12, where Joel, the prophet Joel is prophesying, look, guys, you've got this badly wrong. You're not honoring God. You're not worshiping him right. And God's going to judge you. And he says this, to spare your farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Such the, surely the people's joy is withered away. Do you see that the fig tree was throughout Old Testament scripture, when things are going well with God, we get abundance, we get fig trees in fruit. When the people are not doing well with God, when, 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 when God wants to show them he's not pleased with them, we see, we see imagery of fig trees being withered, not fruitful, not going well. And that's what Jesus has found. He's found, he's come, to, he's come at a time and a place where the people of God, the, Jerusalem, the, the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites, are not doing well with God. They might look like they're doing all right. They've got all this temple stuff going on, but actually they're more concerned about the money in their pockets than they are about worshipping God properly. They're more intent on keeping Gentiles out than they are about welcoming everyone to God. They're saying one thing and they're doing something else. They're proclaiming Jesus as king, but he knows 
He knows in six days they are that fickle that they're going to be asking him, asking for him to be crucified. They were obsessed with being pious. They were obsessed with rituals. And they wanted their freedom from Roman rule. But to what end? Actually, their worship of God and their obedience to him were non-existent. It was all display, all leaves, and no substance, no fruit. And we see this actually again in, in Scripture several times in the Old Testament. We see God talking about the worthlessness of worship when it's not meant from the heart. In Amos 5, 21, 22, uh, Amos says this, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. You can do all this ritual. You can do all these routines. You can offer these sacrifices on the altar. But if you don't mean it from the heart, if you're not actually living for me, if you're not actually worshipping me, it doesn't mean anything. What's the point? It's empty. It's useless. Isaiah 1, 13 to 15. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. It's harsh stuff, isn't it? But it's a warning against this false religion. This thing that says on the front cover, we love you, God. But inside, it's anything but. Underneath the veneer, underneath what looks like faith, there's rebellion, there's sin, and there's hatred to God, and there's self-interest and selfishness. That's what the fig tree is illustrating here. The fact that it, it shows leaves, it shows abundance, and yet when you just look under the leaves, under the surface, there's nothing there. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he shows in the fig tree, that's what he shows in the temple. That's what he's getting at. Jesus was coming to free people from their own sin, not from the Romans. He's calling them out on their false holiness, but he's going to show them true love and true leadership. He's going to show them a suffering servant, not a wealthy warrior. You know, in this fig tree and temple incident, Jesus challenging Israel's heart. They're displaying worship for their living selfishness. And actually, it's quite a hard challenge, but it's one I've faced before myself. Years ago, I was running a football team in Leeds. I know I often preach about football, I'm sorry. But here it is. And I was running this team for my church. It was a Christian team, but quite a lot of non-Christian players, which was great. And uh, we got to a point in the season where we were, we were close to winning the league, and we'd never won the league before, and I was pretty excited. And we went to have this match in York. And the match was really important, but it got ruined by this referee. He was terrible. Like, he made really bad decisions, all in favour of the other team. He was a really old guy. I mean, he, he must have been close to 80 he was nowhere near keeping up with play. He just couldn't make good decisions. And at one stage, our striker ran through on goal. He was going to score what would have been, I think, the winning goal, basically. And their defender just volleyed him, just kicked him up in the air. Like, in, in football, that's a red card. You're off. It's a sending off every single time, not even a doubt, because the guy's through on goal, he's going to score. And the referee dawdled over to him and gave him a yellow card. And I, I was just, this is, this is ridiculous. And we ended up drawing the game, and it cost us, it cost us winning the league. And after the game, it's customary to go and shake hands with the other manager and shake hands with the referee and say thank you. And, and to be honest, when I got to the other manager and the other referee, I'd, 
I told them what I thought. <laughs> I didn't swear, I didn't shout and raise my voice, but I was pretty honest. I said, you know, this is not okay. Like, you, you shouldn't be refereeing anymore, mate. You're too old. <laughs> and, I, and I had a bit of a go at him, I'll, I'll be honest. I told him exactly what I thought of his performance. Now, the other manager, actually, wasn't a Christian. And he got wide-eyed and suddenly he went, oh, you're all the same, you flipping Christians. You act all holy and nice, but it's just the veneer. Underneath, you're just horrible. You're rotten like the rest of us. And I was like, oh, oh, that hurt. That really stung. Because I'm right here. He was a rubbish referee. <laughs> like, you don't understand. He was a terrible referee. But he made the wrong decision. But actually, I knew deep down. I knew there was some truth there. I'd let my mask slip. And there was some ugliness showing. I wanted to be this successful, skilled Handsome Christian football manager. <laughs> You're laughing at. <laughs> Leading a team of non-Christians and showing them the love of Jesus. That's what I wanted to do. That's the whole reason of this football team was to show people, look, there's a way to play football which is competitive, but actually it's fair. We used to win the fair play trophy all the time. We were a really friendly, good team. We played good football, but we, we played it the right way. And there was me, like, undermining all that by being this selfish, glory-hunting idiot who actually, more than anything, I just wanted to win. And I didn't care about who I trampled on. I didn't care about the fact this eight, this poor 80-year-old guy had given up his Saturday morning in the freezing cold to come and referee a load of reprobates kicking the ball around. And I'd just given him an absolute earful because he didn't get a decision right. Actually, my heart inside me had come out. The veneer had slipped. From a distance, I was maybe leafy and promising this, this good guy, this good Christian guy who's managing a football team on closer inspection. The heart was all wrong. The fruit was absent. It might seem like a silly example, but I hope it helps. Are there areas in our lives where the truth doesn't match up to the outside image? Let me throw a few challenging examples out. Some of these might sting a bit. Do we make a great show of relying on God for everything? But in actual fact, we do it all on our own strength. And then when we fail, we blame God that it's gone wrong. Do we do that? I know I do sometimes. We have, this, we have this great, oh God, like I rely on you, I trust in you, I trust in you, you're great, I love you, I'm going to worship you, you're brilliant. And actually we get quite good at just doing things under our own steam. We don't rely on them at all, we rely on ourselves. And then it goes wrong, it's like, oh God, how did you let that happen? Like, well, <laughs> could have asked me. Do we, do we worship God vibrantly on a Sunday morning? Do we make a great show of singing our hearts out and praising him? And then actually through the week, we worship something else entirely. Actually, God's bottom of our agenda, whether it's a job or money or family or hobby, but actually what we show on a Sunday morning, the leaves we show on a Sunday morning, actually when you look underneath, there's nothing there. Is that a problem for us? Does anyone relate to that? Actually, underneath, there's not much going on. Do we openly... Thank God for his provision in our lives. We call him our Jehovah Jireh, the guy who provides everything for us, who gives us what we need, our money, our, our, our possessions. Do we, do we proclaim him, oh God, thank you for this, you give me this, I love it, thank you. And then do we fail to be obedient in giving back to him? Do we fail to see what the Bible says about actually worshipping him with what he gives us, giving back to him out of what he gives to us? Are there leaves there? Do we show thankfulness? Do we show praise to God for being our provider? And then underneath, we don't give back to him. We don't trust him with our money. Just a few things there. Some of those might stick, some of them might not. I don't know. 
they were just some things that popped up to me during the week. Do you know, make no mistake, God wants to bless us. He wants to produce fruit in our lives. And that's where the fruit comes from, by the way. It's him who produces the fruit. It's not us. He produces the fruit. But that fruit comes from obedience and it comes from remaining in him. It's him who makes us fruitful. But if our hearts are divided, if we worship God with our mouths, with our leaves, and underneath there's nothing, and we disobey him with our actions, then we'll be exposed in the end. And if we withhold our hearts from God, he'll withhold his fruit. There's a challenge there for us, I think, to take away. So that's the first thing. The first challenge of this passage is that God wants us to have a sincere heart, not a showy character. Make sense? Second thing is this. God wants us to know and seek his power over and above our strength. You know, having given Israel two really visual warnings, the fig tree and the temple, Jesus ends this passage by teaching his disciples a lesson on prayer. What happens is Peter sees the dead fig tree and he's like, gosh, Jesus, look, the fig tree is withered. And like Peter, I love Peter because you know, he's just spent three years with Jesus. He's watched him raise the dead. He's watched him heal the sick. He's watched him cast out demons. And now he's absolutely astounded that Jesus has killed a tree. It's like, come on, Peter. <laughs> it's not that amazing. How could this happen? How does, how does Jesus have this authority to do this? And Jesus' answer is actually not to focus purely on what he can do, but actually to tell the disciples, you know what? This power that I've done this with, it's available to you. And he says in verse 23, 24, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you will that you have received it and it'll be yours. That's a pretty radical verse, isn't it? Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you will have received it and it will be yours. It's very radical. It's also very misused and misquoted. And it's been taken by many to simply mean what it looks like it might say, that we can pray for anything we want and we'll get it if we really believe we will. And what that does, it reduces God into being some sort of cosmic butler or genie. That you rub the lamp and he'll grant whatever wish you've got. I don't think that's right. And for two reasons. Number one, my own personal experience. Because if prayer worked like that, I'd be six foot two. I'd be church planted in the Maldives and (laughs) Everton would be winning the league. Like if prayer worked like that, that's how it would be for my life, frankly. And I'm sure you can all think of things in your own lives that you've asked for and prayed for and it hasn't happened. I'm sure you can all think of things where you think that. So from personal experience, I know that God isn't this cosmic butler. He's not a genie. If you make a wish, he'll, he'll grant it automatically. But we also know that it's not the, that's not the way because of what else the Bible tells us about prayer. The, the Bible talks about prayer a lot. For example, in James, uh, James chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, it addresses this very issue. It says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know, there's a sense that prayer doesn't work if we're just giving him our own personal shopping list of everything that we want in our selfish, 
earthly desires. You understand that? So when he says, whatever you ask for, it's important to understand what whatever is. Whatever we ask for doesn't mean every selfish personal desire we want that's going to make our life really comfortable and exciting. Actually, the whatever is about what's in his will, what he wants to pour out in our lives. I'm going to give you a very, very imperfect metaphor for this. Don't, don't read too much into it because I'm sure there's a flaw in it somewhere, but it's the only way I could think of trying to explain this. I want you to imagine that me and my dad go to just the most stunningly beautiful Italian restaurant in the world. It's got the finest Italian chef in residence. He's got the choicest fresh ingredients, the most beautiful recipes, all ready to just create the most incredible meal. I love Italian food. It's great. All the ingredients are organic and healthy and delicious. And I get to this restaurant, I say, wow, Dad, what shall I have? And he says, son, whatever you fancy. And I turn around and say, do you know what? I want a family bucket of KFC and I want a stack of American pancakes with syrup. That's what I want. And it's like, son, that's, that's not on offer in this restaurant, actually. I've brought you to this beautiful Italian restaurant with all the best food, all the finest ingredients. It's good for you. This is be amazing. This is going to bless you. Choose something for this menu. It's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but dad, you said I could have whatever I wanted. Like, I want the KFC and I want the maple syrup and the, and the pancakes, frankly. And dad's like, no, son, this stuff is going to bless you. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be good for your body. If you eat a bucket of chicken and a load of pancakes, I promise you, you will regret it. It's not going to be good for you. Do you get the idea here? Am I making sense? Making you hungry. Yeah, exactly. Do you know, with God, anything, anything is possible. He can do it all. He can do everything. He's right when he says, if, you know, you will move the mountains. But he won't just desire, he won't just grant any desire of our heart. Because frankly, some of our desires of our heart are really not good for us. And they won't lead to the best things, even when we think they will. Actually, God wants us to desire the things that he desires. He wants us to seek his will, not our own. And that's not shortchanging us. That's not giving us a bum deal. Because God's gifts are good. And they're a blessing to us. And frankly, if we get what God's got on offer for us, we're not going to be sorry. It won't always be easy. There will be hard times. We talked this morning about, actually, sometimes God's good, but life's hard. But he wants us to want what he wants. That makes sense? It's a feeling that Jesus understood perfectly, actually. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he, he was arrested and killed, he knew it was going to happen. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be sacrificed for our sin. And he had a conversation with his father. And he said, Father, is there any other way? Can you take this cup of suffering away from me? Do I have to do this? Surely there's an easier way. Surely there's the bucket of KFC. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think I want to choose from this menu. But actually he knew. He knew what his father's will was. And he was obedient to it. And actually the outcome was brilliant because he went to the cross and he died for us and then he rose from the dead and he achieved the forgiveness of our sins and then he was exalted. The Bible says he was exalted to the highest place where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
out of going God's route, out of going through God's will, not his own, ultimately Jesus has achieved something incredible for us and he's also enthroned on high. You see? Jesus gets that. God offers us an abundance of life, of joy and of blessing. But all too often we get distracted by the things that look delicious and the things that look more attractive, but actually will bring us nothing but trouble and regret. So yes, God's power is unending. And we could ask him to move a mountain. And if it's his will, be assured that mountain will move. But that power is not for our own selfish ends. He wants us to want what he wants. And I think that's the idea. That's where faith is so key too. If we're confident that what we're praying for is in God's will, then our faith to see it happen will be greater. I think this is an invitation from Jesus to pray big prayers. Call us back to the, the mini-series we did recently. Chris and I did a, just a two-parter on prayer. It's worth going back and listening because we cover a lot of this about prayer and asking for big stuff and asking for a God who wants to bless us but trying to understand that, that it takes time. It takes some asking and seeking and knocking but it also takes time to understand God's will and pursuing him. Now, my challenge here would be, again, what Chris said last week as we talked about our prayer meeting. Do you know you can measure the health of a church by its prayer life? How's your prayer life? Are we praying big, faith-filled prayers? Or are we, just, are we just letting life happen around us? Or worse still, are we just praying selfish prayers? Are we just asking for the stuff that we really want to make our 80 years on earth as rich and fat and <laughs> materialistic as possible? Or are we just relying on ourselves? Are we not even going to God with any of this? It's quite a tricky little passage this morning. I hope... I hope we've made some sense of it. Just a little summary, a, little, a few things just to, just to be taken away this morning. Number one, remember this, that God cares so much more about what's underneath than what's on the surface. Appearance of holiness, of faithfulness, doesn't mean much to him. He wants hearts that are abandoned to him. He wants hearts that live for him, that worship him, that put him first above everything else. And when we have hearts like that, that are abandoned to God, then we can pray in great confidence that he will act and fruit will not be lacking. It'd be great just to worship as we close. And actually, just as we worship, just to, just to, just to pursue God and ask him that he will give us hearts like his. Hearts that long for him above everything else. Hearts that pursue his will for us not our own selfish desires well god will you help us to avoid surface level faith will you help us to avoid looking leafy but being fruitless lord we don't really care what we look like on the outside lord we want to have hearts that run for you hearts that thirst for you that long for you that put you first in everything Lord, and we ask that you will bless us out of that, Lord, with fruitfulness. Lord, that you will give us the desires of your heart, not ours, but yours. Lord, help us to desire what you desire. And help us just to live a life of fruitful, God-given abundance with you. In Jesus' name, amen.